morning we turn in the Word of God to 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith, unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ." whom having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, for as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, 
who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. This morning, we consider the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 33. Of how many parts doth the true conversion of man consist? Of two parts, of the mortification of the old and the quickening of the new man. What is the mortification of the old man? It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins, and more and more to hate and flee from them. What is the quickening of the new man? It is a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ, and with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which proceed from a true faith are performed according to the law of God, and to his glory, and not such as are founded on our imaginations or the institutions of men. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, this is an important Lord's Day, which should be evident from the very fact that it is the last introductory Lord's Day before The Catechism explains the two main parts of our thankfulness, the two main parts of the Christian life, the two main parts that indeed are our part in the covenant according to the baptism form. That our fathers saw it necessary to include a second introductory Lord's Day is indicative of the importance of the subject matter here. Specifically, the subject matter of this Lord's Day is conversion. It explains what conversion is, and it's explaining what conversion is as it was mentioned in the previous Lord's Day when it asked the question, whether someone can be saved who continuing in their wicked and ungrateful lives are not converted to God. So it explains what that is. But as in our Father's Day, they explain this because there are 
many, many errors that multiply about this concept, about this truth. And perhaps you can even see that when you look at the number of things that are mentioned here. Some of these errors are this, that because in conversion an individual is active, about which there should be no dispute, because conversion is explained as something whereby we have sorrow of heart, we hate and flee things, we have joy and delight to live according to something else, that the person who is converted is active, there is the conclusion, therefore, that this is that person's work. Conversion is the work of man. Conversion is the work of the individual. That's not true. Conversion is a saving work of God. It is God who converts us so that we are converted. Much as we explain faith. In faith, the child of God actively believes. He actively knows and wills things in faith. But the explanation of that is that now is not man's work. But it is God who works both the will to believe and the act of believing also. God produces that. There is also failure to distinguish and also failure to keep together regeneration and conversion. These are two saving acts of God that are distinct and yet inseparably related. Confusing them leads to trouble, heresy, wrong doctrine. There is also confusion of repentance and conversion. Repentance is said to be conversion and conversion repentance. And because this Lord's Day mentioned good works, repentance is now said to be a good work, what you do. And conversion, therefore, must be your work. We're going to explain the truth of that creedily this morning over against that significant error. Also, there is this wrong view, that because conversion is a saving act of God, and it's related to regeneration, which we often believe occurs in a child very early in their life, that therefore there is no need to call a child of God to conversion. That the call of the gospel, that the call of God to an individual, whether in or out of the church, does not include a call to be converted. Does not call someone to live a certain way or have a certain attitude toward himself and toward God that to issue such a call and speak in such terms would deny, for example, the truth of regeneration 
or imply that your turning subsequently then is your work. We will explain this Lord's Day according to our Scripture and Confessions this morning, doing so under the theme, The True Conversion of Man, from question and answer 88. It asks about the true conversion of man, and we're going to notice three things about that. The quickening of the man, then the turning of the heart, and then the changing of his life. This morning, we're going to look at a number of related concepts, and I will do my best to try to distinguish and teach simply and plainly to you what the Reformed faith is with regard to these things. And where we want to begin is with the subject of quickening, and particularly now the quickening we call regeneration. We want to begin there because there is an inseparable connection between regeneration and conversion. If you treat conversion without considering regeneration, you end up with heresy. And yet also if you confuse the two, you end up in a wrong place. So I want to begin there. And I want to begin there even though that's not the main subject here. I want to defend, however, beginning there because I believe the Catechism leads us to that. First of all, I want to show that these things are connected. In Lord's Day 33, the question is asked about conversion. And then conversion is explained in terms of two parts, two things. There is a mortifying of the old man... And I think we have a very good sense of what that is about. And then there is a quickening of the new man. Now when we read that, we might assume that that quickening is referring to the quickening we know as regeneration. And that's not exactly correct. Behind this Lord's Day is an understanding of our Father's that there has been regeneration, and it's inseparably connected to what's talked about here. And that should be evident from it talking about the quickening of the new man. This presupposes that there is a new man that is to be quickened. And the question is, where did that new man come from? What is that new man? What do you mean new? New implies it's something that I didn't have before. So where did it come from? And the answer is regeneration. The explanation for that new man to be quickened is regeneration. Now, the Heidelberg Catechism recognizes regeneration, but it does not specifically talk about it as such. And it's worth remembering that just before we enter into the subject of the law of God, which is the next Lord's Day, 
that the subject of regeneration was also brought up in connection with the law in the very beginning of the catechism. And this is actually one of only a couple of mentions of regeneration in the Heidelberg Catechism. In Lord's Day um, uh, 3, question and answer 8, this question is asked. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? And the answer is, indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. There, in the third Lord's Day, eighth question and answer, the subject of regeneration is brought up, and it's attributed to the Spirit of God. Then that subject gets dropped specifically, but not exclusively. You would make a mistake if you would say that regeneration now falls from sight in the minds of the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism or us who follow it. You must understand that in all that follows, regeneration is simply assumed. But it's not going to be mentioned again specifically until we get to the work of the Holy Spirit, which, as you recall, is the third part of the Apostles' Creed. There, when we turn to the confession, I believe in the Holy Spirit, regeneration is even more implied and then specifically mentioned and significantly mentioned with regard to baptism. Now I mentioned this when we went through the sacraments and I pointed it out but now it's good to go back there again. In question and answer 70 the question is asked what is it to be washed with the blood and spirit of Christ? Listen. It is to receive of God the remission of sins freely for the sake of Christ's blood, which he shed for us by his sacrifice upon the cross, and also to be renewed by the Holy Ghost and sanctified to be members of Christ, that so we may, now notice, more and more die unto sin and lead holy and unbelievable lives. Notice that phrase, die unto sin. Hmm, sounds very close to what this Lord's Day talks about. But you say, Reverend, it doesn't talk there about regeneration. Well, it does. It's implied when it speaks about renewal. So we have the next question and answer, which gives a quotation from Scripture that connects those two ideas. Where has Christ promised us that He will as certainly wash us by His blood and Spirit as we are washed with the water of baptism? Answer, in the institution of baptism, which is thus expressed, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. This promise is also repeated where Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Notice, baptism is connected with regeneration. The washing of regeneration. Now that is a quote of Titus 3 verse 5 where we read about 
the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. There, the concept of regeneration is connected with renewal and both attributed to the Holy Spirit. So notice, the previous Lord's Day, which mentioned renewal, implies regeneration, which it talks about next, which is connected in Titus 3, verse 5, and makes clear, too, that those two terms are related, but they're not the same. There's a distinction to be made between regeneration and renewal, even though they're closely related. Why do I bring this up? Because you may recall that one of the questions that we considered when we entered into this third part of the Heidelberg Catechism is why must we do good works? And part of the answer, indeed a good part of the answer, is because we are not only redeemed and delivered by His blood, but also renewed by His Holy Spirit after His own image. I know this is a lot of information to throw at you, but just notice the words that are used. There's the words renewal, attributed again to the Holy Spirit, and here it's connected to being in His own image. My point in all this is that the subject of conversion implies regeneration. And it's there wherever you consider the subject. You can hardly separate the two. And it's found even here when it mentions the quickening of the new man. Now what I want to do next is we're going to enter into a subject I want to try to keep it to the subject of regeneration, but it's going to be virtually impossible to do that without considering this new man. So I want to, in the first place, look at the biblical and confessional teaching on regeneration. And then I want to look at that as it applies to the new man and what the Scripture does. And what I would like you to pay close attention to is the relationship of the Holy Spirit to both regeneration and the new man. Now hopefully you already have seen, as I have pointed out, that regeneration is explicitly attributed to the Holy Spirit. We are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. So is renewal. We are renewed by the Holy Spirit. And hopefully you see that this conversion that is the subject of this Lord's Day is talking about the renewal of the Holy Spirit that was brought up in question and answer 86. So there's a connection there. But now let's look at this regeneration and what it is. What is the creedal and biblical teaching about this? Now I want to begin with the scriptures that we read. There is a reason we read 1 Peter 1. Not only because it talks about conversion. 1 Peter 1 is the apostle urging the strangers to which he writes to certain actions, certain activities, a certain way of life. But you will notice that that is grounded in what he says already in verse 3, 
where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice, begotten us again. That's simply biblical language for the same thing as regeneration. Regeneration means to generate again. It implies the taking of something that is dead and making it alive again. That's the same idea of being begotten again. Now, Peter tells us a little bit more about that. That's how he begins this chapter, but that's where he also ends. When he's talking about perseverance and the purifying of their souls in obeying the truth unto unfeigned love, he grounds that in something. How is that possible? How can I demand this? How can I call this? And the answer is because we are, verse 23, born again. Being born again. There, again, is biblical language for the very same thing as regeneration. Being born again, being born from above, being begotten again, being recreated. These are all things, terms, biblical concepts that all point to the same thing, regeneration. But notice, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed. That's the idea. So born again has to do, begotten again, regeneration has to do with an incorruptible seed. And the idea is that an incorruptible seed is planted somewhere. A seed that cannot die. A seed that continues. Now, before we move on elsewhere, in our confessions, I want to simply bring you back to our Heidelberg Catechism to show that in many places it presumes regeneration. And one such place is Lord's Day 22, where it's finishing our confession in the Apostles' Creed, and we're still in the section on the Holy Spirit, and we're dealing with the confession we believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Now just notice, what comfort takest thou from the article of life everlasting? Answer, that since I now feel in my heart, notice, it has to do with feeling something in your heart, the beginning of eternal joy, notice that, I feel in my heart, the beginning of eternal joy Remind you of the joy that's talked about in conversion? After this life, I shall inherit perfect salvation, which I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have it entered into the heart of man to conceive, and that to praise God forever. In other words, there's something in you. There's something there that you feel and you know that is the beginning of everlasting life, this very same life that we expect to be perfected. Now, that is about the extent of the explicit teaching on regeneration in the Heidelberg Catechism. 
Don't take me wrong there. I could go to many, many places and show where it's clearly implied or assumed. But if you want regeneration to be explained, as well as to understand its connection to conversion, you have to go to the canons, the canons of Dort. And we're going to do that this morning. Now the first thing I want to point out to you is where the canons begin talking about regeneration explicitly. And they do it the same place that the Heidelberg Catechism does, which is in explaining a mitigating factor of depravity. That when one considers depravity, one must do so in the light of regeneration. If you explain depravity without regeneration, you cannot explain the salvation of the child of God. It must be considered. Both of our creeds do it, or two of the three. In Article 3 of Head 3-4, we have this. All men are conceived in sin and by nature children of wrath, incapable of saving good, prone to evil, dead in sin, and in bondage thereto, now listen, and without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit. Notice the term. Without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, they are neither able nor willing to return to God, to reform the depravity of their nature, nor to dispose themselves to reformation. Notice what our fathers are saying. That there is given to a child of God a regenerating grace. And that regenerating grace enables them to return to God, both as an ability, a power, and a willing. Without it, you're neither able nor willing to return. Notice the word return. Return is very, very closely related to convert. The word convert means to turn with to turn about, to return back to a place that you were before, to return into another direction. Our fathers here explicitly claim that regeneration is what enables the child of God to do that. And notice too the distinction that is made between returning to God and reformation. There is a returning to God, and then there is a reformation of the depravity of the child of God. There is something that needs to be explained about his behavior. There you have a distinction made between regeneration and conversion, and conversion as a returning, and returning as a reformation, or re, uh, conversion as a reformation. Now, back to regeneration. What is regeneration? Well, the, or the canons explain that very, very well. But what throws people is that when they explain it, they call it conversion. Well, then they call it regeneration. And here is a good time to remind ourselves that our creeds do use those terms somewhat interchangeably. 
They will use the term conversion for regeneration or regeneration for conversion. But they do recognize there's a difference. So we need to maintain that distinction. They are so closely related that you can interchangeably use the terms and yet you must distinguish between them. I hope I make that clear. Now if you want to know what the connection is, We'll explain that a little further, but it's not hard to explain. It's much the same way that you would explain the birth and the life of a child. There is only one child and one life of that child, but there is a moment when that child is conceived. And even a moment when that child is born, before that they were not conceived, before that they were not born. And then they are conceived, and then they're born. And we distinguish that from their life, and the growing of their life. It's very natural, it's not unnatural to do that. And there's a clear difference between them, isn't there? We may even talk about the activity of the child. How the child did not at all was aware of or cooperate in or was even conscious of their conception and birth. In fact, often not even really conscious after the fact of the first few years of their life. Can't remember them. And yet that life must continue to grow. That is much the relationship between regeneration and conversion. What we're talking about with a life of conversion and everything that goes into it is all rooted in the beginning of regeneration. So, with that explanation, please listen very carefully to the very plain language of our creeds. When God accomplishes His good pleasure in the elect... So behind even regeneration and conversion is God's good pleasure in election. He does something. He works in them true conversion. Now if you listen, you'll see that it's really talking about regeneration, and I'll prove it. In other words, he not only causes the gospel to be externally preached, remember, Remember that Paul said that we're born again of incorruptible seed by the Word of God? Because that's the means that God often uses to regenerate in adult. The Word. Here our fathers do justice to that. He causes the gospel not only to be externally preached, but powerfully illumines their minds by His Holy Spirit that they may highly, rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God. So there's something done to the mind. But, also, by the efficacy, now listen to the phrase, of the same regenerating Spirit. <laughs> See, <laughs> they call it conversion, and they're talking about what God is doing by the regenerating Spirit. How closely can I there? But by the efficacy, irresistible power, of the same regenerating spirit, he pervades the inmost recesses of the man. So it's something that God does in the inmost recess of the man. He opens the closed 
and softens the hardened heart. So it's mentioned the mind, it's mentioned the heart, and circumcises that which was uncircumcised, namely the heart. He infuses new qualities into the will. So it's an act of God upon the will. Which, though heretofore dead, the will which heretofore was dead, he quickens. There's that word, quickens. And notice our fathers apply that word quickens specifically to the will. And he quickens it so that from being evil, disobedient, and refractory, he renders it good, obedient, and pliable. Actuates and strengthens it that like a good tree, it may bring forth the fruits of good actions. Notice, God does something inwardly to the mind, to the heart, and to the will so that it's like a good tree. And a good tree that may bring forth, may bring forth good fruit. That's the end or the goal. Notice, there's not confusion between the fruit and the tree. And what regeneration does inwardly and what's done outwardly. I point it out because today what the catechism or the canons just explained in the catechism, they're, they're confused. The fruits of good actions are good works. But notice what we just explained is what's done in order to bring those forth. To call repentance a good work is false doctrine. That's not true. It's not confessional. It's not biblical. Article 12, just to make clear that it's not strictly speaking about conversion, but what God does inwardly converting beginning with regeneration, resulting in outward actions, it calls this. And this is the regeneration so highly celebrated. Notice, Scripture highly celebrates it. Scripture does not highly celebrate our depravity and remaining in it. Then we would not be saved it highly celebrates regeneration and denominates a new creation. That means calls. This is what it calls it. Notice how the emphasis is on this being a miraculous, unbelievable, saving work of God. A resurrection from the dead. A making alive. Which God works in us, notice, without our aid. He doesn't need our help. God works it in us without our aid. But this is in no wise affected merely by the external preaching of the gospel. It's not produced simply by what comes through the airwaves here out of my voice. It's not produced by moral suasion, convincing or such a mode of operation that after God has performed His part, it still remains in the power of man to be regenerated or not. It's not like God does His part and now God waits for you to be regenerated. But no, when God regenerates, He converts. God changes. God turns about. It is evidently a supernatural work, most powerful, and at the same time, most delightful, astonishing, mysterious 
and ineffable. In spite of my sermon this morning, it's ineffable. I will not be able to fully explain it. I can't explain conception and birth. I can't explain creation and resurrection. I can't. It is not inferior in efficacy to creation or the resurrection from the dead. Now notice, as the Scripture inspired by the author of this work declares, so that all in whose heart God works in this marvelous manner are certainly, infallibly, and effectually regenerated and do actually believe, even believing, the act of believing and the will to believe find their source and their explanation in this act and work of God. Wherefore, the will thus renewed is not only actuated and influenced by God, but in consequence of this influence becomes itself active. Wherefore, also man is himself rightly said to believe and repent. Notice, believe and repent by virtue of that grace received. Both believing and repentance have their explanation in regeneration. So that explains this new man... But there's still some questions. Why then does this man have to be quickened? Is he not already quickened? Good question. And what then is this mortification of the old man? What are, what is this new man and this old man? Well, we're going to look at that very briefly. Maybe I'll have to return to this larger, I don't know. But the old man we have a sense of, don't we? That's me. That's my nature. That's what I was born with. That's my corrupt flesh. That's my depravity. That's what I got from Adam, isn't it? And yet when one turns to the new man, there is confusion about what the new man is. Recently and more frequently, I have individuals that imagine the new man is the Holy Spirit that the new man is indeed the Holy Spirit. I am the old man. The new man is the Holy Spirit. That's false. That's false. That's not true. And that could be demonstrated very easily from the Holy Scriptures. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20, where the old and new man are explicitly referenced, as well as Colossians 3, verses 1 through 10, you will discover something about the old and the new man, which is that the new man is created. The new man is created, and in Colossians, the new man is renewed. Not only that, but Ephesians chapter 4 uh, not only says he is created, but he is created after the image of God. Created after the image of God. I wonder I can't find it. I'm looking in Philippians. The new man is to be renewed in the spirit of your mind that ye put on the new man, which after God, notice after God, like God, is created in righteousness and true knowledge and ho true holiness. You go to Colossians 3. Um, Verses 1 through 10, the new man is said to be renewed after the image of God that created him. Now, that points out a couple things. The new man cannot be the Spirit, number one, because he's a man. The new man is a man. 
The Spirit is not a man. The Spirit is God. Talking about two different things. To call the new man the Spirit is to call the Spirit a man. Right there, you're off track. Number two, the new man is created. The Holy Spirit is not created. The Holy Spirit is the Creator. To say the Holy Spirit is created is blasphemy. Not only that, but the new man is renewed. Again, the Holy Spirit is not renewed. He is not said to be renewed in any sense. He is the renewer. He is the renewer. And certainly, the Spirit is not created after God or like God. He is God. He doesn't need to be quickened. In the Lord's day, it talks about the quickening of the new man. The Holy Spirit does not need to be quickened. He is the quickener. He's the renewer. He's the creator. Now, we already showed that the explanation of the new man, his origins, is the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you want to connect the new man to the Holy Spirit, it's very easily done without calling and identifying the new man with the Holy Spirit. And it's very easy. He's the one that created the new man. He's the one that renews the new man. And he is the image of God after which the new man is created. He is the newness of the new man. He is the life of the new man. He is the righteousness and the knowledge and the holiness that the new man has. But he is not the new man. So what is the old and new man? Well, let's look at our creed very carefully and quickly. You will notice something when you look at this that helps explain it, which is true conversion of man has to do with mortifying the old man and quickening of the new man. And then you look at what is the mortification of the old man. It is a sincere sorrow of heart that we have provoked God by our sins and more and more to hate and flee from them. The question is, is who does that? It's talking about the mortification of the old man, but it's talking about something the old man cannot do. Is the old man capable of having sincere sorrow of heart? Is the old man ever have a sincere sorrow of heart that he provokes God by his sins? Does the old man ever more and more hate and flee from sin? The answer is no. But what's being described there is actually actions of the new man putting the old man to death. Please notice that. What's being described here is two sides of the same coin by the same new man. The new man is also quickened. How? It is a, notice, it is a sincere joy of heart in God through Christ and with love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. Now, briefly, the olden man and new man are you. They are you, both of them. There's only one you, there's only one I of you. And you only have one nature. It's not even like there's two completely different natures here. They are you. But the old man is you after as you live according to the old principle of death in your nature. It is you as you live according to the depravity of your flesh. According to that which you received from Adam. And the new man is you as you live according to the new principle of life received in regeneration.
In regeneration, what happens is God implants a new life in your heart. And from there in your heart, it affects everything that you are and what you do. It affects your mind. It affects your will. It affects your hands and your feet and your ears and your eyes. It affects your whole man. And thus it's called a new man. But those same ears and eyes, same mind and will, also can live according to the old nature, old man. So the old man and the new man are you. You as you live according to one principle or another principle. This is the explanation of our fathers. This is the explanation of the creeds. Now, test it. Notice, if you will, very carefully that conversion says very little about what you do. And it has a lot to do with what's in your heart. Why? Because that's where regeneration starts. That's where conversion starts. Will you notice, please, that the mortification of the old man is a sorrow of heart that we provoke God by our sin. And it's to more and more hate and flee from them. Notice, hate is an attitude in the heart. And the fleeing begins in the heart. Notice the quickening. It is a sincere joy of heart through Christ. And with love and delight. Where do you love and delight? Answer, in your heart. And in your will. And in your mind. Notice it's a love and delight to live. It doesn't say it's living, but it's a joy and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. Notice, conversion here is not called a good work. It is not defined in terms of a good work. It's defined in terms of a love and light to live according to them. That's the same distinction made in the canons. Confuse those and you make a grave mistake. So notice conversion is simply an explanation of the effect of regeneration in the heart. Especially in the heart. And included now in that heart is the mind and the will. That's where we are first changed. That's where we first notice the change. That's the first turning about. Now will there be a reaction to that to the rest of the man? Yes. That man will change as to where his eyes look and what he listens to with his ears, what he does with his legs and his body and his hands. I'm going to explain what that is. Those are good works. But conversion is fundamentally a radical change of disposition, a turning about of the heart and of the mind and of the will. And you cannot separate that from regeneration. And that's why it's nonsense to say that when I have a sincere joy of heart and delight, that I come before God. That's impossible. God is always first in everything that we do. Whether it's faith, whether it's good works, whether it's conversion or repentance, they all flow out of and actually are the result of 
so closely tied that you cannot separate them ever from the saving work of God in regeneration. That's why our fathers all defined conversion the way they did. They never, ever defined it as what you do. They defined it as the work of God turning us so that we do. And notice, even then, it has to what you think and your attitude. Now the Catechism bring up the subject of good works because conversion leads to good works. That too is inevitable, as inevitable as the canons make it clear. It's an uncorruptible, it's an efficacious saving work. So one leads to the other, but they too may not be confused and melded together. What are good works? Well, a lot is made of that, but notice that what a lot of people call good works aren't good works. Good works have a very, very sharp and distinct definition. Number one, they come from faith. They proceed from faith. Do anything by anything other than faith. It's not a good work. doesn't matter what it looks like. Doesn't matter what it seems, doesn't matter how people applaud, doesn't even matter what you think. It only proceeds from faith. And I may say right here that faith does not allow its good works to be the basis or ground or the obtaining of its salvation. That wouldn't be a faith. As soon as you talk that way, that's not faith. Faith will not allow that to happen to its own fruits, to its own works. They're performed according to the law of God. They are true love. True love of God and the neighbor. Nothing more, nothing less. They're to the glory of God. You can come to church and you can worship. You can fold your hands and go through all the motions, but you've done it perhaps so people think that you're a Christian. Or maybe you've done it because you think somehow you're paying God back. That's not a good work. Not a good work because it doesn't glorify God. The only good, true, good works are those that glorify God, where the child of God says, that didn't come from me. In other words, it didn't come from my strength, from my nature. It didn't come from my old man. It came from the Holy Spirit who regenerated me, changed my heart. To God be the glory for whatever I've done, for my prayers, for my obedience, whatever it might be, is to the glory of God. And it is not what men imagine it to be or what the institutions of men say it is. Notice that. You can't even have a discussion about good works without carefully defining them. And then you find out what many people charge about good works and what they say they are and imply that when you talk about them, that's Arminian. My response is, well, that's not a good work. The child of God doesn't produce that, doesn't think that way, doesn't walk around proud and say, look what I've done. And that too belongs to conversion. Part of conversion is that when God changes a man in the depths of his being, he recognizes that God changed him. And that, beloved, is the truth of conversion. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord, our God, we thank Thee for Thy truth, Thy plain truth, 
nothing but the truth. The truth as it is found in the Holy Scriptures, the truth as our fathers summarized it in our creeds, and the truth preached here to us, that we may give to Thee all honor and glory for the great turning of us toward our attitude toward sin and even the good works in our lives. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.